you would please turn in your Bible to the New Testament epistle of 1st Peter. I use that word epistle and I wonder, should I use it? But I keep doing it because I want you to know what it means. The word epistle, we have several epistles in the New Testament. Uh, most of the New Testament is epistles. And it just means that they're letters written from an apostle to the church. And this is a letter written from Peter. It's not written from 1 Peter, but it's the first letter that Peter wrote. Um, today we come once again to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. Last week we focused our attention in this text on verses 13, 14, and 17. Today we'll, we'll revisit this text and we'll concentrate on verses 15 and 16. So we'll read the text and then we'll ask God's blessing on our time in the scripture this morning. First Peter, Peter 3, beginning verse 13. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better if God should will it so, that you should suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Let's bow our heads and ask God's blessing on our time together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus Christ, our hope. We pray, Lord, today that you would work in us and through us. God, we pray that you would sanctify your people. We pray, Lord, that you would save sinners. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> I wonder how many sermons have been preached on verse 15. Be ready to give a defense. I, I know I grew up hearing sermons preached and hearing that verse quoted often. Uh, and this is where we'll start today. Verse 15. Be ready to give a defense for the hope that lies within you. Be, be, be ready to give a reason or be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within you. Uh, as I said, I maybe like many of you have heard this verse read and quoted my entire life. And most of us, when we think about this word, be ready to give a defense. We we may think of apologists, maybe the, the men that come to your mind are C.S. Lewis or James White, Josh McDowell, <coughs> Hank Hennegraaff, Lee Strobel. Some of these men who who are apologists, who would call themselves apologists. And, and I think it is right for us to think about apologists and apologetics when we come to this verse because the word translated here for us to, to give a defense or to give an answer or forgive to give a reason uh, that word here is the Greek word apologia and it is from apologia that we get our word of course apology and apologist and apologetics uh, as the word is used here in Peter's letter, it gives us the idea of a formal setting where someone would present a legal argument in defense. 
a legal defense that is given in a formal setting. So that's the word that we have here. Uh, apologists write, debate, and argue to give an intellectual defense of the Christian faith. That is what they do. Some of you may enjoy listening to their debates or listening to lectures or listening to their man-on-the-street uh, argumentation for the validity of the truth of Scripture. Uh, there are some that I've listed who would be known as apologists, but there are others that you may think of as apologists, those who argue for the faith, those who give a reason. And by the way, arguing is in our day, that word is seen with a negative connotation to argue. I'm going to use that word a lot today, and I don't mean it negatively. Uh, I mean it in a positive way to give a good argument for something. And, and there are those who give an argument for the Christian faith. And we may think of apologists and we may say, well, you know, R.C. Sproul was an apologist. And I think I would agree with that. Or, or Vody Balkum. Some of you like to listen to Vody Balkum and, and, and uh, Paul Washer. So we may think of some of these other men who are not only apologists, but they are also pastors. They are preachers of the word of God uh, who, who not only preach, but also take up the task of apologetics when they have the opportunity. And I think this is helpful for us as we think about apologists and we think about uh, who is to be an apologist. I think this helps us. It's not only the intellectual and educational elites, but we also know that pastors and preachers should be able to do the task of apologetics, to give a defense, to give a reason, to give an argument to the question of the Christian faith. But as we come to the text today, we remember that this letter is not addressed to seminarians and intellectual elites. And, and there certainly is application here to pastors and preachers. The sermons get preached to me first and then to you. So there's application here. But this letter from Peter is not addressed to pastors and preachers. This letter is addressed to regular, everyday, run-of-the-mill Christian men and women. Now, somebody just said, hey, that's me. This, this letter is addressed to people just like you. Those who are living as strangers and aliens in the land, waiting for the day when they will be in their heavenly home with Jesus Christ. Is that anybody here? That's us. That's, that's who we are. And, and, and this letter is instructing those very people, those regular Christians, you are to be ready for the task of giving a defense, of giving an argument. You are to be ready to give an answer. You are to be ready for apologetics. Now, I will never ask you to call it apologetics, but you should be ready to give an answer. And this is the first thing that we see in this text. The, the first thing, the work of giving a reasoned and logical defense of the Christian faith is for every Christian. Now, often we want to assign that to seminary professors. 
Somebody that's got doctor in front of their name. That's the job for them is apologetics. Sometimes we want to assign that task to the ones who have pastor in front of their name. The ones who have teacher in front of their name. But Christians, this letter addressed to regular, everyday, run-of-the-mill Christians assigns the task to every one of us. Every Christian. Every believer is instructed, commanded to this task. That's the first point. Secondly, we see the manner in which we are to do this job. The, the manner in which we are to undertake this task of apologetics. You know, we begin this phrase, always be ready. Be ready to give a defense. Always be ready. The answer that we are to give is not an unprepared or an ignorant or a, or a poor answer. We, we need to be ready. We need to be prepared. Someone said, well, I'm not prepared. Well, we need to get prepared. Someone said the best way to prepare is to, or to be prepared. Let me back up and say that again. The best way to be prepared is to stay prepared. Think about it. That, that's the best way to be prepared is to stay prepared. Think about how we as men and women prepare for anything that we do. Uh, let's say you're going to set out to do something like you're going to, you're going to be prepared to run a marathon. That's, that's the, or, or you're going to be prepared. How does one find themselves prepared to climb Mount Everest? Or that's a little ambitious for most of us. How does someone find themselves to pre prepared to climb any old mountain? You certainly don't show up on race day, get your number and hope that God will zap you with the strength and endurance that will last you 26.2 miles. Is that how you do it? That's not how you, I've not done it, but I know this, that's not how you do it. That's not how it happens. You don't show up at the base of the mountain unprepared and then expect to be prepared. You, what do you do? You prepare you're going to be prepared, so you prepare, you train, you practice, you push yourself. And if you don't, you will be embarrassed because you will fail the test. If you will be a marathon runner or a mountain climber, you will show up for the work, for the preparation. When you don't feel like it, you still show up. When the weather is not perfect, you still show up. When it's inconvenient, you still show up. I, I just thought about a time that someone who worked for me, who was a runner, in the freezing cold weather in Houston, Texas, it might have been raining, said, I'm going for a run. And I think they said something really, really crazy like, do you want to go? <laughs> but but how are they prepared to run because they showed up when it was inconvenient when the weather wasn't good when they didn't feel like they showed up you prepare then on the day of the race you're prepared you're ready so Christian are you getting the parallel here if you are to be ready to give a defense for the Christian faith then you must 
Get ready. If you're to be ready, you must get ready. You must prepare or you'll never be prepared. If you don't prepare, you won't be prepared and you'll be embarrassed because you'll fail the test on that day when it comes. And this test will be so much more important than any race you'll ever run or any mountain you will ever climb. If you will be a Christian ready to give a reasoned defense for Christ, then you must show up for the work. When's the work? Now, now some would say, well, the work is at home in my prayer closet. And certainly there is some work that can be done at home in your prayer closet. But the main thing, the main work is, first of all, Sunday morning worship. And Sunday morning Bible study. And our midweek Bible study. On Wednesday nights at 6 o'clock. These are your best opportunities to get ready, to prepare, to give an answer for your faith. Now, some of you ask questions like, do I have to go on Wednesday nights? Do I have to show up for that? Is Bible study on Sunday mornings a requirement? That's the questions you're asking. Some of you have long since abandoned the idea that you're going to show up for those things. So you're not even asking those questions anymore. But you should be asking. You should be asking, what do I have to do with my time that is more important than preparing my heart and my mind to live in this in this unchristian world? To live as a Christian in this unchristian world. What do I have better to do with my time? 20 minutes more sleep. Is it worth it? Christian, show up and engage when you don't feel like it. When the weather is not perfect. When it's inconvenient. Prepare. And then on the day of testing, you will be prepared. You will be ready. Now, someone may be asking, is this really going to happen? Is there going to be a day when an atheist or a Muslim is going to approach me on the streets and challenge me to a public debate? Is that really going to happen? Is it really? And will I really be asked to give a reason for the hope that is within me? Well, the answer is yes, but it's not going to look like what you may be thinking. The answer is yes, you will be asked to give a reason. And I'm going to give a couple of examples, but I won't cover all of them. Dad and mom, you're raising your little ones day in and day out. And then one day, one of them says, Dad, I got a question. How do you know there's a God? Mom, why don't you believe the stuff that my teacher teaches about the origin of the earth? Dad, what is faith? Mom, do you just kind of believe in Jesus? Or are there specific things that you have to believe about Jesus? Your child will probably come up with better and harder questions than I can think of 
And parents, you had better be preparing because you can't afford on that day to be embarrassed in that moment. On that day, you want to be the instrument for strengthening your child's spirit, for strengthening your child's faith, for giving them a reason to believe. Students, those entering the workplace, those entering the military, those entering the police force, there will be a day when the things you believe will be brought into question. And the things you believe may be ridiculed. On that day, will your faith be shaken? On that day, will you be embarrassed and fail the test? Or will you be ready? If you'll be ready, get ready. If you'll be prepared, be preparing. Now it is, it is unlikely that any of us, me included, will ever be challenged to a public debate. But we will see a day, and perhaps many days, when we will need to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. Point one, this is for every Christian. And point two, every Christian should be preparing. Now in the third place, let's look at the statement again. Always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope. <coughs> the hope that is in you. Now here we need to have a good understanding of the biblical use of the word hope. And we need to have even better an understanding of Peter's use of the word hope. Whenever the Bible uses the word hope, it never is used like we use it in our everyday uh, vernacular, in our common speech. We mean it's almost wishful thinking. You hope the rain will not ruin the ball game. You, you hope that it snows on Christmas Day and you hope you'll get a pony for your birthday. You hope, and that's how we use the word. When we use the word hope, it is always something that is uncertain and it is often something that is unlikely. That's how we use the word in our everyday. Uh, we use the word like dreaming. And as a matter of fact, not only do we use the word like dream, we put them together. What are your hopes and dreams? We talk about them together like that. The Bible does not use the term hope in that way. It means something different. The biblical use of hope refers to a rock solid assurance of something. Christian, the hope that lies within you is not a dream. It is not a wish. The hope that lies within you is an assurance. It is a guarantee. This is not being ready to give an answer for something that is unsure. It is giving an answer for something that is sure and certain. This is how the Bible uses the term. But let's see how Peter uses the term. So he uses this word hope in chapter 1 verse 3. So if you flip back a page, we'll see that there. Chapter 1 verse 3, we read this. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Born again to a living hope. First of all, the hope as Peter's using it is not a dead hope. This is a living hope. And as we look closer at how Peter uses this word hope, he is referring to something, some hope that is inseparable, yea, indistinguishable from the person of Jesus Christ. Our hope lives because Jesus lives. Our hope is real and sure because Jesus is real and sure. Jesus is our hope. So when we apply this in our understanding of hope and how we use it here to verse 15, we are to always be ready to make a defense, to give an answer, to give an argument to everyone who asks for your hope in Jesus. Give an answer for your Savior. Our hope is Christ. <clears throat> now, just to prove this further, let's consider how this verse begins and then we'll fit it all together. Verse 15 begins, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Sanctify Christ in your heart and then we have this hope that is in you. What is the hope that is in you? The Christ who you sanctified in your heart as Lord. He is the hope that is in you. This is for every Christian. Every Christian should be preparing. And the hope that we are to give an account for is none other than Jesus Christ himself. Fourthly, there's another way that we should be preparing. I've given some ways to prepare, be, to be preparing, to be getting ready. But I believe here we have the most important way to prepare. We've talked about preparing the mind to give a ready spoken answer but this first phrase of verse 15 commands that we first sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart now if you've been attending on Wednesday night this is a shameless plug if you've been attending on Wednesday night you'll remember this and for the rest of us this is what you're missing out on and we're not going to go into the depth that we've been in on, on Wednesday nights. But it's the use of the word sanctify. Sanctify here does not mean to become more Christ-like. Now, I, I, y'all just, you need to know how my mind works. Sometimes it, it locks up. Sometimes I catch a gear and it's just, it ain't going anywhere. And that happened as I was praying right before this sermon. Because I prayed that the Lord would sanctify us. And you know what I meant by that? That he would make us more Christ-like. But we come here. Could this use of the word sanctify mean to be made more Christ-like? Well, sanctify Christ. Can Christ be made more Christ-like? No, that, that's impossible. Christ can't be more Christ-like. So when we say here, sanctify Christ, this is not what we mean here to be made more Christ-like. Uh, sanctify, sometimes we use it to mean to be less and less sinful and more and more righteous. 
What could it mean that in this context? Sanctified Christ. Well, Jesus has perfect righteousness and therefore Jesus' righteousness can never increase. And Jesus is perfectly sinless and therefore his sinlessness can never, uh, he can never become less sinful because he has no sin. So sanctified Christ does not mean more Christ-like and does not mean less sinful and it does not mean more righteous. In this context, sanctify means what it often does in scripture to separate for a special purpose, to set apart, to cut off, to separate for a special purpose. The example we could use, one example would be the temple bread of the Old Testament was prepared like any other bread, but then it was separated, set apart, sanctified for a special use. Now in the same way, the bread and wine that we use for the Lord's table is just normal unleavened bread and normal wine but we have set it aside, we have separated it, we have sanctified it for a special use. In this text, we are commanded to sanctify Christ. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. That is, we are to separate Jesus from everyone and everything else that we hold in our hearts. He is to have a special place. He is to have first place, preeminent place in your heart. He is to be set apart in our hearts from all else. And, and we can understand exactly how we are to sanctify Jesus by looking again at the verse. Peter doesn't even use the name Jesus. Did you notice that? I keep saying sanctify Jesus. Sanctus set apart Jesus, but, but Peter doesn't use the name Jesus. He uses two titles here, which instruct us how Jesus is to be sanctified. He says first, sanctify Christ, Christos, God's anointed one, the Messiah promised from the very beginning. Jesus is God's Christ, and we are to sanctify him in our hearts as Christ. And secondly, we are to sanctify Christ as Lord, curios, supreme authority, one in control, king, master, Lord. Sanctify him in this way. Sanctify Jesus in your heart as Lord and Christ. And when we think about doing that, Christians, what effect does that have on a person? Does it make a difference to sanctify Christ in our hearts? To, to sanctify Him as Lord and Christ in our hearts? Does it make a difference? I think it does. I think it makes the Christian's life to look like verse 16. 15 ends with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the things in which you are slandered, well, what things are we slandered in? Those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. When Christ is sanctified as Lord in our hearts, we can only be slandered for good behavior. Because we're living lives yielded to Christ. We're surrendering our eyes and our tongues to Him. Our hands are used in His service. Our feet take us to the place of His service. 
We are to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts and it makes our lives look different. We take all these things and we connect them all together. <clears throat> the holy life which reflects Christ as Lord in your heart that is, first of all, the most important part of giving an answer for the hope that lies within you. How, how would it look if you prepared your mind to give the best intellectual, the best Bible answer to every question concerning Jesus and you live in open sin? Do you know what that says? I can tell you all the stuff about Jesus, but it makes no difference to a man's life. Jesus does not make a difference. That's what that says. The most important way that you can give an answer for the hope that lies within you is to live the Christian life sanctifying Christ as Lord in your heart. Be ready. Be ready for those learned and spoken answers. But first, make sure that your life is an answer for the hope that lies within you. To be sure, a life which reflects Christ as your hope will certainly bring some to ask further. Why are you different? Why is your life not like everybody else? Why are you not controlled by the lusts and desires and the priorities of this world like everybody else that I know? Why? And then you have the opportunity to give that spoken answer. So Christian, prepare your life and then prepare your mind to give an answer. Someone maybe here this morning listening and you're just not getting it. You, you don't have an answer because you don't have the hope within you. You don't have the assurance of knowing Christ. Maybe you're trying to live a moral life. Maybe you're trying to be good to your fellow man. But that's never going to bring you that hope that the Bible speaks of. The rock solid assurance of salvation, forgiveness of sin, peace with God will never be found in you trying to live a moral life. Only Jesus Christ can bring you these things. It is only by turning away from your sin and turning to Jesus that you can be saved. It's not enough to know things about Jesus. It's not even enough to believe that the things you know about Jesus are true. The Bible says the demons believe in that way. Salvation comes when we trust in Jesus' life and death as our salvation. Turning away from our sin, turning away from everything else, running to Christ for grace and forgiveness. Now, there is no Christian who has not acknowledged and recognized Jesus as Lord. So Christian friend, you, you sanctified Christ as Lord in your heart when you placed your faith in him. But here's the question for today. 
Have you slowly allowed your heart to be controlled by other influences? The world's priorities, the world's standards, rather than the word of God? Have you tried to be the Lord of your own life? Not that you would say, I'm the Lord of my own life, but maybe you're living in that way. Christian friend, repent of that sin. Begin today to prepare in heart and in mind and in life so that on that important day, you will be prepared. You will be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within you. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Father, we pray that you would apply these things to our hearts. We pray that you would convict us of sin particularly. That you would grant to us repentance. That we might repent particularly. Christ, you are our only hope. And if we cannot find hope in you, then we have no hope. God, help us today. By your word and by your spirit, make us like our pray that you would work to save our children, our loved ones, our neighbors. And we pray, Lord, that you would forgive us where our lives have not been a testimony of your grace. And we pray that you would strengthen us. That they would help us as we prepare our lives, our hearts, and our minds. Help us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.